0: How's everybody doing today? woo, Dude, first service was filled with people who actually thought they were in this service. So it's, uh, it's, it's good you guys are here. Um, yeah, I'm excited and a little bit nervous. Uh, as Fred said, don't worry, it's not like super adult math. But there are some themes uh, as we've been going through the book of Revelations that are, are really sensitive, huh? They're really graphic. And, and they cause us to think and to ponder and uh, this is going to be one of those weeks as we dive into God's word, it, it challenges us, at least it challenges me, to, um, to see purity in life with him. Um, last week we, we jumped in, we were in Revelation 16, right? And uh, Revelation 16 is the beginning of kind of God's final judgment unleashed on, on earth. And in this uh, image that we see in chapter 16, it's really um, this vast destruction across all of humanity right? It's it's creation, it's humans, it's the entire world that nobody is going to be left not affected by this. But as Pastor Ron shared last week, uh, what we see in verse 16 is actually the same judgment we see in verse 17 and 18. They're just different perspectives. It's looking at the same story kind of from a different point of view. So last week we see really the the judgment of God on all the world. And this week it gets more specific. We see the judgment of God specifically focused on on all of the things of the world that pull us away from God. All of the false religions, all the false ideologies, all the idols that we put in our life that actually keep us from experiencing the fullness of relationship with God. And if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, um, I was uh, when we were teaching through Revelation chapter 14, you're going to notice a lot of themes between then and today. Revelation 14 um, really describes all of these things of the world as the city of Babylon. It uses that as an illustration. And if you remember, right, we talked about how attractive Babylon really is, how, how sexy so many of these things are. Yet in chapter 14, it says, Hey, watch out. The end of Babylon is destruction, right? And then we come to chapter 17 and chapter 17 is actually describing the destruction on Babylon, but the imagery shifts a little bit. It gets even more graphic, even more personal, and it shifts to Babylon now being represented as a prostitute, and it depicts her destruction. And I was thinking about this um, this week of why, uh, why the image of a prostitute, and I was just really struck with how personal and how kind of gut emotional that is, right? I mean, think of it this way. Imagine, um, and maybe for some of you, this won't be hard to imagine. Imagine you're on your wedding night, and you've just married the person of your dreams, right? Your friends, your family all came to the wedding. You've got this great honeymoon. Um, then the next day, your, your spouse gets up and decides to go across town and pick up a prostitute and, and takes that prostitute and, and, and has sex with that prostitute and then brings that prostitute actually back to your house and says, Hey, honey, is it cool with you if, if maybe they stay in our spare bedroom? You know, just for a little while while they get on their feet. And then a couple months go by and they go, oh, you know what? We've got this huge bed in our bedroom. Why don't we bring them into the bedroom with us? That would be great. Wouldn't that be nice? And years later, they're, they're at your school, your kids' uh, like school plays, and they're, they're picking your kid up from school. Right? We hear that image and it, and it gets at, at least for me, it gets at somewhere deep, right? It's, it's dirty and it's, it's shameful and it's ugly. And we hear that and we go, no, that's wrong. Yet, I think that's the image God wants us to have in our mind when we do anything other than put our faith in him. Throughout scripture, he's defined a relationship for us, an intimacy that's the only kind of relationship that we have here on earth that could even describe it is a marriage relationship, right? True intimacy of two people coming in union with each other. And God says, I wanna have that kind of relationship with you. And when we do anything contrary to him, it's as dirty and shameful as us committing adultery, as sleeping with a prostitute. And that's the image that we see played out here in the book of Revelation, a very graphic image. So we're going to read this passage. But um, as I was kind of looking at it this week in my office, I was like studying it and I'm looking at it and I'm just keep reading the passage and I'm having a hard time getting all the pieces together. Right. So I actually had to start drawing it out because there's just a lot of moving pieces. So I thought, obviously, we need a flannel graph to uh, depict this, but we couldn't find one. So we had to make our own. Um, Anyway, so I'm gonna be putting stuff up here and hopefully that kind of helps us just think through the pictures of what's going on here. All right, so it starts here. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me. So in chapter 16, there's these seven bulls that are, are unleashed of kind of God's judgment. And one of these angels who unleashes the seven bulls comes to John and shows him this vision. He says, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. It's all right, we got her here. Bring her down a little bit. All right. Who is seated on many waters. And we'll talk about this in just a second, what that represents. Um, And with whom all the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. So here you've got all the kings of the earth coming to her, that she is this kind of um, incredibly seductress woman. And whom with the wine of Um, And with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers of the earth had become drunk. So we see the kings coming to her. We see all the dwellers of the earth and all the people of all places are coming to her, both rich, poor, powerful, powerless, are coming to her and are drinking from the cup of her sexual immorality. And then he, again, this is talking about the angel, carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Right, there's our scarlet beast for us today. Um, and the beast was full of blasphemous names, all right? So there's those blasphemous names. And, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So this starts getting a little bit more complex here, right? So we got our seven heads there. All right, somewhere we got, oh, horns are over here. Um. Put these willy nilly there. All right. Um, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with cup with gold and jewels and pearls. So the image we see here is a woman uh, who has become very rich, very wealthy, and powerful in this partnership that she has with this beast. She has clothes on. Trust me. Um. And holding in her hand is a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurity of her sexual immorality. So this cup is powerful, and it's it's filled with just all the evilness and the brokenness and the ugliness and the lies of our world. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abomination. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So here we see this, this cup of sexual immorality. It's not just of the evilness of this world. It's not just that she tempts people to do bad things, but in her very essence, everything she's about is actually destroying and killing and pulling people away from God. And that she's, she's drunk on that. She's find great pleasure and, and, and thrives on that. And when I saw her, again, I being um, John here, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? For I will tell you the mystery of this woman and the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers of the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life um, from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And this calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads you see here represent the seven mountains. And they also represent seven kings. So we'll just take these seven kings here. And five of which, so we got five here, who um, who have fallen, one who is, and one who has not yet come. And when he does, he will come only for a little while. As for the beast who was and is not, it is the eighth. So we see kind of an eighth here, okay? And it belongs to the seventh. So that guy belongs here to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, and together with the beast um, will hand over their power and authority to the beast. And they will make war with the lamb. Okay, put our lamb out here. And the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him are the chosen and the faithful, are the called the chosen and the faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the people and the multitudes and the nations and the languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast... They will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked, and they will devour her flesh, and they will burn her with fire. For God has put this into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this passage, right? And it's super complicated. You can see why I felt I needed the flannel graph to to illustrate this. Um, But let's just take uh, some time and let's just go kind of image by image through this and kind of see what comes up and then we'll make some applications from that. So the first image that we see coming up here is the great prostitute, right? And as we've already said, she represents really the false teachings and the religions and the ideologies of our world. And I think it's interesting when you read through a lot of um, kind of commentaries from the Reformation for the last 200 years, you see this great prostitute is being identified as the Roman Catholic Church, right? They say, well, look at how the Roman Catholic Church, some of its theologies have actually clouded the good news of the gospel and the richness of it. And look at the bishops. They even wear red robes. And and there's a lot of of reasons why people have made that uh, that connection over the years. But I think that might be a little bit of kind of an ethnocentric perspective, a very European perspective, right? I would imagine that if I'm a believer, a theologian living in Egypt, I might see the great prostitute as Islam, right? Or if I'm living in northern India, to me, maybe I would see the great prostitute as Hinduism. Or if I'm living in a country with a strong Marxist atheistic um, kind of uh, policy, then I might see the great prostitute as atheism or uh, kind of political, um, you know, anti-Christianity? And and I think the answer is a little bit of all of these, right? That anything that pulls us away from a true and pure relationship with God is considered adultery. It is represented here in, in this prostitute. In fact, the image that we have of her is sitting on on many waters and these waters represent, it says, it tells us all the nations and the languages and the people of the world. In other words, all the dwellers of earth have come and have become drunk off of her sexual immorality. That there is not a place on earth that, that has been able to avoid her temptation. That hasn't given in to the lies of this. It's, it's a very graphic image. In fact, this cup of sexual immorality is the same, the same image that's used in chapter 14. And it's this cup that represents kind of immorality and cheap pleasure and self fulfillment. And I was thinking about this morning, that this morning, especially as we're going to take communion, the Lord's table here at the end of the service, and just the contrast of these two things. One, you have this this cup of self fulfillment, self gratification, of lust. And in contrast, that with the cup that we're going to take later today, which represents the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus, the love given freely to us. And what a great contrast we see in that. But this cup that the prostitute offers is attractive, right? We talked about that a little bit again in chapter 14 that it's sexy it's attractive it pulls us in in fact it it points out i think the brokenness of every culture of every place of all time that there has never been a culture or a nation on earth that has fully been able to avoid this that all of us no matter where we're from no matter where we've lived no matter who we are we are in a world that has given in to the lies of the prostitute and and so uh and so that, that should be sobering to us. That should be reminding just of the ugliness of it. When this chapter starts, it almost seems like a festive scene, right? You've got this great prostitute, and you've got all the drinking of sexual immorality and the nations and the people, and everybody's kind of gathered around here. And it reminds me maybe of the pictures, maybe some of you have seen on Facebook, right? The, the pictures that typically are taken about two in the morning at the, the club and there's partying and fun, and, and you can imagine that when they took those pictures, you know, of different people that you might know, and they took those pictures at 2 in the morning, everything seemed so fulfilling and so happy, but when you look at those pictures kind of from sober eyes, and you look into the eyes of the people in those pictures, so often there seems to be just kind of an emptiness, right, kind of a hollowness to that, that scene, to that joy, to that pleasure, And even more so, I think, do we see just a hollowness in this. We see what what seems to be such a festive image, seems to be such kind of a beautiful image, that we see just a few verses later that that cup she's drinking is actually the blood of the saints. What an ugly and sobering image that really is. And I think that we should see that. I think part of the reason that God has shown us this vision is so that we see all the seductions of the world as what they truly are, is hollow and empty and ugly. And this, this, another picture we see here in this passage is the beast, right? And we see this, this very um, kind of complex and amazing image of the beast and Right, one of the things it says right off the go is this beast is covered in blasphemous names. That tattooed all over this beast are things that are contrary to God, statements of war and hatred against God himself. And everything this beast is represents evil and hatred at battle with God. It is Satan incarnate, incarnate. it's the Antichrist. It's, it's pulling all the powers and things of the world against God himself. And following this beast, it says, is all the dwellers of the earth whose name is not written in the book of life. And one thing that struck me about that was just how large of a group that is, right? That it's, I like to think of this group just as like serial killers and child abusers and people who cut me off in traffic, right? That's, that's kind of who this group represents. But I think this group represents more than that. It represents people I respect, people I care about, people I trust, people I think are, are good people. That anyone who is not in relationship with God himself, anyone who is bought into the lies of the world is following the beast. And what we see here is we really see two groups of humans, two groups of people, right? We see the group that's following the beast, and then we see the group that's following the lamb, those who are chosen, who are called and who are faithful. And I think it should make all of us ask that question of, which group am I in? Am I following the lamb? Or am I following the beast and the prostitute? Another thing we see here is just this image of wealth and power, right? It's represented in kind of the purple clothes and the, the jewelry and, and all the nations of the world kind of coming, the kings of the world coming. And what we see here is this allegiance between the prostitute and the beast has been a very profitable endeavor for both of them. It's worked well that by combining the kind of political power of the world and by combining the religious ideological powers of the world, that together they've become very powerful. A lot of my friends who maybe are antagonistic to religion in general, I've heard them make this argument that religion is just a tool of government, right? And it just, it's a tool to manipulate people. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, actually. That so often we see that religion and politics, they come together to manipulate people, to actually pull people away from God. In fact, I think that might be part of the reason, if you ever notice, if you travel around to uh, big cities of the world, so often the two most ornate buildings in any city are what? They're the religious buildings and the political buildings, right? It's the courthouse and the temple or the courthouse and the church. And because this is a a very lucrative connection for these two to come together and and that they're going to turn their power directly against God. Yet the power we see in the prostitute is actually a very false power. In some ways, she's actually the victim in this story, right? That she comes with such great power, and she tempts and draws all the nations, all the people of the world, and all the kings are going to her. But in the end, she's left in the desert devoured and burned and stripped naked. And I think that that reminds us that while this seduction is so powerful in our life, that it is actually very vulnerable to the plan of God, that God will win. There's some other things we see here, right? Is we see these seven mountains. And um, for most of us, this probably seems a little bit strange. It probably doesn't quite, you know, make sense for us. Um, but Rome, throughout ancient history and throughout the, the writings of this time, Rome was described as the city on seven hills or the city on seven mountains. And so I think when people read this, they would have, orig- uh, would have focused right in on this being a representation of Rome. And then a lot of people have kind of taken these seven kings, the five who have come and the one who is and one is to come. And they've said, well, those must be uh, um, different emperors of the Roman Empire. Right. And they've kind of traced them down and they have to do some different things with numbers to make that happen. And, And that could be. But I think what we see here is I think we see an image of Rome, this nation that was so powerful during the time this was written, that had its grips onto all the different areas of the known world. And which seems so powerful, yet, even with that, plus the alliance of all the kings with the 10 kings, that even if you combined all that power to go to war with God, they, they couldn't win it, right? And because we see these kings, right? We see two kind of sets of kings. We see the seven kings, and then we see another uh, set of 10 kings. And these 10 kings, I think, represent all the nations of the world, all the people coming together, in what seems to be this alliance against God. And I was struck by this. I was struck by the fact that here in this text, you see this great amount of wealth, this great amount of power, this great political force. And they go to battle with the Lamb, and it says, and the Lamb will conquer them. And I was just struck by the fact that if we were to combine every nation on earth today, if we were to take all their armies, all their wealth all of their ideologies, every religion on earth, and they were all to be focused directly in battle with God, that they could not defeat him. And it made me think of the times in my life where I feel like I can't overcome the sin or temptation in my own life. This small piece, and just reminded that the same God who can defeat every king of the world can defeat the sin and the brokenness in my life. And what we see here, the, what I think is actually the, the main character of this story is not the prostitute. It's not the beast, but it's the lamb. And the lamb comes in in verse, I think, 14. And, and it says that all the nations, all the kings, every, all of this goes to battle with this. And he will defeat them. In fact, even this judgment that, that takes place of the prostitute, even that is connected with the plan of God. That He says that he put them... Put that in their heart. And I'm just reminded of just the sovereignty of God in all this. The power of God. That the, the lamb is in charge of this whole story. That it's his judgment. It's not the judgment of the kings. It's not the judgment of the prostitute. It's not the judgment of the beast. It's the judgment of God. And in that, the, the hope and the beauty of that is you see that with him comes an army of those who are chosen and called and faithful. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, that he brings us with him. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I think one of the things that it made me question as I was kind of thinking through this passage this week is so what, right? I mean, it's interesting and we can hypothesize all sorts of future things and go, this king must represent this nation and this must represent this. And, And there's entire books actually written just about Chapter 17, depicting how the world's going to end and what all it's going to look like. And I think that can be useful. I think that can be helpful. But what struck me is I was just reminded this week of 2 Timothy 3.16. right? In 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, it says that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and repute and for correction and training in righteousness. And one of the things I walked away from as I was just kind of thinking about was Okay, what does God want to train me in righteousness through this passage? What is it about this passage that, that is meant to, to train me up, to equip me to be the man of God that he's called me to be? What is it that he's equipped our, equipping our church through this passage? What's the application? How do we take this, all these images, all this complex thought, and put this into something in our life that can draw us more and more like him? And one of the the things that, that came out is, I think, this question that permeates this entire chapter. And it's this question of, are you a bride of the king or a client of the prostitute? Right? I mean, that's kind of the underlying question here. Are we people who are in tight relationship with the lamb that we are experiencing the fullness of what he's called for us? Or are we lined up at the brothel? Right? It's a graphic image. It's an image that's used throughout scripture over and over from the very beginning of scripture. We see this image of God, the perfect God, drawing people into relationship with him. Yet we also see this image throughout scripture of God's people going, yeah, that's great. I love that intimacy. But what about this over here? These idols over here sure look nice. Yeah, I know that you're God and you've taken care of us in the past, but, but how about this? And we see that play out even into our own lives And this passage, I think, wants to show us the end of that story. The end of that story is that prostitute, that ideolatry, the idolatry, the the false religions, the broken worldviews that we have, all of those are coming to a graphic and destructive and horrific end. And there is only two groups. There's only those who are in relationship with the lamb, those who are the bride of God, and those who are clients of the prostitute. Following Jesus is, I think, one of the most inclusive yet exclusive realities, right? It's inclusive in the fact that following Jesus is the universal call for all people of all countries, of all nations, of every culture, of every language. That we don't have to learn some sort of special language or special code to follow Jesus. That it's the same call that goes out to people who have been moral and pious their entire life and those who have spent their entire life doing detestable and horrible things. It's so universal in that fact. And that's why we can all sit here in unity, coming from such different backgrounds, such different stories, and we come together going, it's only because of Jesus that I have hope and I have salvation, right? Amen to that. Yet it's an exclusive call because it's only through the name of Jesus that we are saved, that there is no other option out there. It's not that we can just kind of be good and chase this thing and still find Jesus. Or that we can kind of do this and pursue that and still be good enough. That it's only through a relationship with God himself that we can experience eternal life. So this this very inclusive call for all people gets very exclusive at this point. And I think verse 15 reminds us of this. It says that it's only those who are chosen and called and faithful are those who are with the Lamb. So following Jesus is not just some part-time religion. It's not just something that we pull out to, to satisfy our, our desire for traditionalness or our desire for spirituality in our life. It, it takes all of us in every aspect of who we are. And I think this question gets very personal for us, right? Are we in relationship with God? Or are we being seduced by the world? And some of the things of the world are so seductive, right? Maybe we say, now, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be all in. I come here on Sunday. I sing the songs. I feel jacked up, ready to go. But then I go to work, and I love my job, and I love my career. And if I'm honest with myself, my career is the most important thing to me. It becomes an idol in our life where you say, you know, I'm here, and it all makes sense. And I love what I'm hearing, and I want to follow Jesus. I've made a commitment to follow him, but I go home, and I'm with my family, and it's so easy to fall back into my, my old religion, my old practice. And I think... It causes us to ask those questions, to struggle deeply with this truth. Am I a bride of Christ or am I actually just filling my punch card with the local prostitute? There's another point that that comes out of here, and that's that there will be destruction of all seduction. We do a Bible study on Tuesday with the pastors, and and Pastor Ron said this. He goes, you know what strikes me is there's a destruction of seduction. And that really kind of made me think about this for a second. You know, because here you see that there comes a point in time where the work of the prostitute is no longer needed. So Satan takes her and destroys her, right? That there's a day that we're going to come before judgment and we're going to stand before God. And we can say, you know, God, I now I know the truth, but I've been seduced all these years. That's good enough, right? I mean, things just look so attractive. These other things felt so right. These were okay. I thought they were good. That's okay, right? Yet there's a day when judgment comes, and we're either following Satan or we're following God. And I think the reason that Satan was done with her is because he had accomplished his purpose. Those who had followed him were already his, they were trapped. At that stage, there's going to come a day if we're not followers of Jesus, I think we're going to know full well that we've chosen to follow Satan. And we're going to stand before that, and we're not going to be able to hide behind any sort of seduction anymore. See, all the images we see here is very temporal, right? We see the beast that says, who was, who is not, and will come, but then to be destroyed, right? And the dwellers of the earth, it doesn't even give these people like full-time residential status. They're just people who happen to be dwelling on the earth. The kings of the world will, will be given power for an hour, and they'll give all that power over to, the, over to Satan. And I was struck by that idea of power for an hour and how, how many things... With an hour of temptation, we throw away, right? An hour of temptation can destroy a marriage forever. An hour of hatred and anger can destroy a relationship with our kids. An hour of greed can destroy businesses. And we we focus on these things. We allow these seductions into our life. One of the things I thought was especially interesting about this passage was in verse five, you see John, and he's looking at this scene, he's looking at the prostitute and her power, and and he starts to become kind of amazed, kind of in awe of this, and Satan jumps, or I'm sorry, and the angel jumps in and goes, whoa, 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 don't be amazed by that. Don't be in awe of this. Don't be overwhelmed by this image. Let me show you the end of the story. Let me show you what's about to happen. And I think sometimes I need to hear that in my own life. I can be overwhelmed with the seduction of this world, right? I can look at the things and go, wow, they're so powerful. They're so, and they just seem so right. They seem so good. And I think what I'm hearing in this passage is God saying to me, no, look at the end game. Look at what's happening here. All this seduction is coming to an end but the only thing that matters is your relationship with me. And there's great hope in that, right? And that great hope, I think, is found in the fact that those who are chosen and called and faithful get to ride into battle with the king, with the lamb, that there is his victory is our victory. But then again, I was thinking about this and like, what possibly could I add to the great battle against Satan, Right? Am I really going to be that much of a help having me in that army going with the lamb? I mean, I I can't even overcome temptations in my own life. I can't even overcome Satan in small areas of like my language and not yelling at my kids. Like, how could I possibly go to battle with Satan and contribute anything to this fight? And I think the reality of it is I can't. Yet God has still invited me to be a part of that. And I'm amazed by that. Um, Some of you guys don't know this about me, but I'm actually awesome um my wife doesn't think so but uh a couple years ago i got a letter proving otherwise i got this letter from the city of kaiser oregon the town i grew up in and i opened this letter and it tells me it told me that i was inducted into the kaiser hall of fame big deal right and that they were going to actually put a plaque up in the kaiser fire station with my name on it and uh all right, now we'll, let me tell you the truth of what happened. That, that actually did happen. But the reality of it is, when I was a freshman in high school, I played football. And our, uh, our football coach um, came to me and one other freshman and said, hey, the varsity team is going on to the playoffs, and I want you guys to get to experience what it's like to be on a winning team, to practice with the team. But know this, you probably will not play. Unless we're winning like 50 to 0, you're not going to play, right? Right? And that year we went on to be the state champions of Oregon. And in the town of Kaiser, Oregon, that's a big deal. There's parades and newspaper articles and TV crews. And and it was a big deal. But guess how many minutes of that final game I played? Zero. In fact, the entire playoff season, I think I might have only played like three or four plays the entire playoff. I did nothing to help that team win. Yet I was on the team. So when that team was inducted into the Kaiser Hall of Fame, my name was on the list because I was one of the 50 guys playing on that team. And I think that's the image that we see here with the lamb, that we get to ride into victory with the lamb, that when we read Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 and we see the great victory of God and how he's making all things new in this world, it's not just something that he's doing and we're detached from that because we get to be a part of that victory, that his victory is our victory. And so that gives us incredible hope and power and excitement. And as I read that, I'm just overwhelmed with that, that I want that in my life. I want to be on that team. So in kind of conclusion, some things for us to think about. I was struck by the fact that this victory is already won, right? That when Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead, that he conquered Satan. In fact, in John 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, I want you to have peace knowing that I have already overcome death or overcome the world that I've already been victorious, that this thing, this battle that's gonna take place, this is just a formality, that God has already won the war and yet we are still waiting for the fullness of that to take place. And so we come with great hope and yet we are stuck here waiting, right? Being tempted by the things of this world and I want my life to be fully devoted to the one who's been fully devoted to me, right? I want my life to be in pure relationship with God, so we're going to sing a song here, and um, during that song, I think it's a great time for us just to, 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 um, to ask those questions. If you are not a follower of Jesus, maybe this time to, to really wrestle with that. Say, Jesus, I want to be a follower of you. Or if you are a follower of Jesus yet, we've been um, standing in line at the brothel. Maybe now is the time to say, okay, I want you to have all of me. And after that, we're gonna take communion together as a church and just reflect on the victory that Jesus has had. So let's pray. God, you are, you are the only one who is pure. You are the only one who is right. You are the only one who could give salvation. God, you are victorious. So we pray that, that we see that, but we see the brokenness of our world. We see the lies that are all around us as just that, as lies and filthy and dirty. And the only thing pure is you. And help us to see that in every decision, every moment of our life. Help us to see that in our relationships with each other, in our relationships with our families. Help us to see it just in our worship and our devotion to you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.